Acme, Washington, a very pastoral landscape where cows were more common for cutting grass than lawnmowers. Mary Stavick, she was a hardworking single mom, a school bus driver who had carved out a nice life for her and her three children on a country property. Mandy was Mary's middle child. In high school, many called her the all-American girl, smart, beautiful, athletic. In 1989, Mandy was just 18 years old, a freshman at Central Washington University. And Mandy came home for the Thanksgiving holiday. And November 24th was just like any other day. She often went for a run, her usual route, home to the river with the faithful family German shepherd, Kyra, totally absorbed in the music blasting from her sport Walkman. A five-mile running back, that was her routine. So several hours later, when the dog returned without Mandy, her family's worry quickly ratcheted up to panic. Law enforcement and the community searched night and day for Mandy, helicopters, Locals on horseback, on foot, and in their own vehicles joined the search, but there wasn't a trace. I rolled her over, her eyes were slightly open, and her head was resting on my shoulder, and I looked down, and it was my daughter. And I got that feeling in my chest. And it's, it's amazing to me how even now, 30-some years later, just recounting that to you brings that emotion to the surface again. What happened to Mandy Stavick? That question would haunt not only the Stavick family, but law enforcement and the tight-knit community in this idyllic, hard-working, slow-down-and-smell-the-roses town for the next 30 years. An investigation that would eventually pry open the crypt of something sinister, or rather, someone that would test not only the stamina of the community, but question the very framework of small-town America where nothing bad ever really happened. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is The Scene of the Crime. Oh, man, nothing bad ever really happens in small-town America, let me tell you. You know what? <laughs> I've lived in <laughs> enough small towns to know that... <laughs> <laughs> it's usually that people don't realize all of the nefarious activity that's happening around them, I think. Well, and I think that actually plays a big part of the this whole investigation is our notion of small town America. But part of this story and what's really, really important in a 30 year investigation, almost 30 year investigation, starting off from that very day is Whatcom County Detective Ron Peterson. And you could say that he was a devil's in the details kind of guy. You know, he was curious, loved being in the know when it came to new technologies that would help collar bad guys. But to say he was meticulous, well, that would be an understatement. Peterson's expertise at collecting and preserving evidence is important for you to file away because his hunger to get it right is a critical detail in the Mandy Stavick murder case, right? So this is 1989, and in the 80s, Ron was a fingerprint expert. He received special training from the FBI in Washington, D.C., a world away from Whatcom County. His FBI mentor gave him a heads up about a new technology that would change everything when it came to catching criminals. I was always seeking new knowledge, new technology. And when I was 
reading and hearing about DNA, I thought, wow, this is going to be amazing stuff. You know, we can get evidence from an individual, from another human being, and compare it to another human being. So you have to remember 1989. I mean... It's really important to understand that DNA was just not even like nobody really knew about it except for people in the know. And especially if you look at Whatcom County, this rural county, I mean, the fact that they sent him to get this to be trained on something that they knew would be a big deal. But, you know, it was in its infancy. So um, so basically, this is important because in, in 1989, just before Mandy's murder, there was a horrible sexual assault case where a beloved grandmother in the community was raped. And Ron used his DNA lab training at Quantico and put it into practice in this case, processing a blanket at the scene and sending that sample to Washington, D.C. And there his mentor walked him through that whole collection process of, of knowing how to make sure that it was you know sent to Washington, D.C. They didn't even have FBI labs in, in Seattle at that time. I mean, it was everything was sent to, you know, back east. And so that case would end up being the first time in the United States that the FBI testified in a court of law. And this is in that county, that wow. little county, the first time using DNA evidence that led to the conviction of a suspect based on that DNA evidence. So it's a pretty big deal. And it's a foreshadowing for what's to come, because basically you flash forward to November 24th, 1989, the day that Mandy went missing while on her jog. The community rallied, searched that area with so many hidden nooks and crannies, so many deep woods and bush. They did this by air, on the roads, as I said, horseback and riverboats. And on that third day, law enforcement combing the Nooksack River made a grim discovery in the crook of the river's edge. I can still see her. I'll, I'll, that picture will never go out of my carousel upstairs in my brain. Um, but she was face down. Her head was downstream. The river at that point was very slow moving. It was kind of a little side eddy. Uh, and it wasn't that deep. And so she was floating face down. Her knees were just barely bumping on the gravel bottom every once in a while. Um, just kind of floating really gently uh, and and she was kind of in a um, if you were to stand her up she was in a stooped position so when I rolled her over I wanted her head and shoulders to be high and her knees and legs to be high and her buttocks to be low so that anything that was there would not wash out. This is amazing on, on so many levels. I mean I can only imagine what it would be like to find someone who had been in the water for, I would guess, a period of time. It was three days. Yeah, so I'm guessing the body was probably in some pretty rough shape. But the other thing I was thinking is, November in western Washington, it is rainy. And I don't mean occasional. I mean downpours for days on end. These rivers are flowing. Mm -hmm. The fact that she was still in Whatcom County is a little bit amazing to and, me. And he was amazed by that, too. What was really helped them with this is because that water was so cold, mm. it really preserved her... I mean, I don't know how to say it, but he basically said it was like she was sleeping. And um, Wow. And, and so at the time, they didn't know if Mandy had been sexually assaulted. 
And he knew even then that water was the enemy of DNA evidence. But that didn't stop Ron. He also knew how important it would be to do everything he could to preserve that DNA. I mean, this is like crazy because in 1989, like nobody was, you know, they would have just fished her out of the water and you know, they wouldn't have been thinking, like, we need to preserve this evidence, right? Had this happened just a few months earlier before he had this training. Yeah, no. And, they may and, never and, have found the and killer. And because of his meticulous nature, he was going to do whatever he could to basically preserve that. And he realized that the only way that he could do that was to actually get into the river alongside Mandy's body. Have you ever stood on a, like, deception pass bridge or a high building and looked over and you got that... A butterfly in your stomach. That's oh, yeah. what happened to me when I rolled her over because when I rolled her over, her eyes were slightly open and her head was resting on my shoulder and I looked down and it was my daughter. And I got oh. that feeling in my chest. And it's, it's amazing to me how even now, 30 some years later, just recounting that to you brings that emotion to the surface again. It was a pretty intense interview talking with Ron, and, and I really appreciated, you know, so much of, of you know, how law enforcement basically falls back on their training when it's it was so emotional. I mean, this is 30 years later. This is a seasoned, you know, he's retired now. And just that finding her almost brought him to his knees. I mean, we can imagine our own children. You yeah, know? I, I, I was thinking, I, I don't think anybody can harden themselves enough to be in that situation and not feel some kind of just trauma. Uh, as a as a news reporter and anchor, I covered a story I still remember when I lived in Phoenix, Arizona. There was a story of a little girl who was, I think, two years old at the time. And at the time, I had a little girl who was two. And there was a story about this little girl found in the desert, completely alone, no water, no food, nothing. The Border Patrol agents found her crying, reaching up toward them. And they had no idea where she came from or who she was supposed to be with. She was miles from anyone, completely alone. And I had nightmares that it was my daughter for years. And th- and that's how this case was for this community, that this, you know, it represented more than just some teen in the river right. who'd been attacked. I mean, it was from the beginning. It was extremely personal. And so Ron basically fell back on his training as he cradled Mandy in his arm. I mean, I can just see it and he can still see it. You know, he says it's etched in granite. He'll never, never forget it. And so stealing his resolve, knowing in that moment in the river, the one thing that he could do to help Mandy was to collect that evidence that would potentially lead to her killer. I mean, you can't bring her back, but you can definitely try to get some justice for her family. She didn't have anything on except shoes and socks on a friendship bracelet. That was it. And as it turned out, the way she was placed in the river and the way she floated down and stopped, I think was instrumental in keeping that evidence up inside of her. So Ron rushed the body to the medical examiner's office where it was determined that the cause of death was asphyxiation by drowning and that Mandy had been sexually assaulted. Would there be DNA? We did the autopsy when I attended the autopsy and Dr. Goldfogel did it. I was telling him, you know, maybe. And he went in and got samples. And with a smile on his face, he said, we've got plenty. So because of my experience with that first case in the United States, I was aware when we recovered Mandy. And I'd like to say that we took the proper precautions to preserve that 
years later, they were able to keep and maintain the quality of that DNA. Yes, and that was because of Ron. Wow. I mean, there's been so many people within this investigation that, you know, he will say, it's not just me that solved this. It was so many people along the way. It's like following breadcrumbs. But he will absolutely say, yes, if I hadn't known that, if I hadn't been the the type of investigator that was like so into evidence and so into like any new technology, that they wouldn't have gotten that sample. So Ron says, though, that from the beginning, you know, Mandy's death put the community on edge. Initially, detectives took a hard look at Mandy's boyfriend, Rick Zender. Mandy and Rick had dated on and off for around three years in high school. And Rick had brought Mandy home from Central for Thanksgiving. But in the end, you know, Rick was cleared. But this one was different in so far as I think she was a symbol of small town America. She was a symbol of what we all wanted when I was growing up as a kid and and lived the American dream. That was a really big deal. It was like an assault on that ideal, assault on that way of life. It's like, how could you do this to to our community? And this is interesting, Kim, because I think that the small town community, when you talked in the beginning about there's lots of stuff going on in small town communities you know it's just that we have this idea right of, of what a small town community is and we want to keep that you know kind of in a bubble and maybe that's why public enemy number one you know they started looking at strangers to the community our initial thoughts were somebody moving through the area because it was right broad daylight in the middle of the day there was a time period when it was hunting season we thought well maybe some people came from another community and saw a crime of opportunity Maybe the person is dead. Maybe they're already in prison. Uh, in the canvassing, we were looking for something that stood out based on information we had. And they received so many tips, even consulted with the Green River Task Force because that was going on at the same time. They the were the pulling Green bodies. Killer, yeah. yeah, they were pulling bodies out of the Green River. And so they were doing everything they could, um, but nothing. They had the DNA of the killer and tips that basically led nowhere. Had anybody seen her when she was out running? And what did they see? Did everything look normal? When did she disappear? Yeah, I mean, basically what what it sounds like is she went out about 1.50, so almost 2 in the afternoon. And this road, it's like a country road. Imagine Mm -hmm. Strand Road is is a long country road. And she went from her house, ran down this, it's like a straight shot, five mile, you know, all the way down to the Nooksack River. And her brother saw her, you know, there's a timeline of like, he saw her like, you know, at 2.30 or something. And then she just disappeared. Mm. I mean, she just vanished. So her brother was the last one to see her alive? Um, And then there were, I think there were some neighbors who had also, you know, even though it's kind of interesting because even though it's like a country road, I mean, like there's a lot of activity going on. A lot of people saw her. It was in broad daylight. And and that's why they knew when she didn't come back, like those those searches started happening right away once her, uh, her family called the police because it was so unlike her to not come back. Well, and I spent some time in a small town and I can tell you that so little happens, but even somebody <laughs> was the small even town? somebody running by would be something you would take notice of because yeah. so, it's just so little happens in in small <laughs> That's town a really America. Good point. Where what small town did you come? What, did you well? Grow up in? I spent some time in Craig, Colorado, which is in northern Colorado, very tiny town. It was a sheep farming community. Uh, very it was similar. about four and a half hours from Denver. 
which was, you know, if you wanted to go to the mall, that's where you went. <laughs> yeah, you had to you had to go for so, a drive. Yeah, but but it was funny because uh, I remember still to this day, I went with a friend to an ice hockey game. And Ooh, it was happened it. to be a male friend. Yeah. It was a kids' ice hockey game. The whole town was there. And for a week or two afterward, there were rumors that this friend and I were a, an item just because we had been seen at this ice hockey game together. So small town America, it doesn't take much for folks to take notice and to just be curious about what's happening. And that's a really good point. And it shows just with that one little gossipy thing. But can you imagine the impact of having this all-American girl, yeah. super popular, super connected to the community, murdered? Basically, they find her body. I mean, it had the town on edge. And basically, the days after the murder turned into weeks to catch the killer, and then those weeks turned into years. But this was no cold case. The community and law enforcement, they never gave up on finding Mandy's killer. And in fact, you know, Ron told me that detectives kept a photograph of Mandy on their desks. For the whole 30 years, for the 27 years that it took to solve the case, it it basically, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but I just find that super compelling that that they would they would keep that and they had a mandate for over the next 20 years that mandate never changed the message was clear to us mandy top priority whenever we can whatever it takes stay on it and then this is another cool piece i love this piece because so often maybe it's because i love true crime and i like you know listen to all these shows where detectives get really like nobody can look at my stuff and you know they don't want to share information they want to be the one to solve it well in fact you know with every new detective on the case they were given the mandy files to you know the the famous murder book and there were significant files there was they had so much stacks and stacks and so new detectives were given files to review to see if there was something that that was missed. And and Ron was like, we love that. We want it. Yes. Is there something that we've missed? And so um, one of these detectives was called the detective Kevin Bauhey. And he was one of those new detectives. Kevin had read a book called The Blooding, where it happened in England, where there was a small village and there was a heinous crime, a rape, I believe it was, that happened. And they knew about DNA. And so they went to So this is from a true crime book. The detective <laughs> read a true crime book called The Blooding. And this was like back in the you know late 80s, probably the same similar time frame where DNA was a new thing. And they went out and collected samples and they didn't have warrants for it because you have to have probable cause. Right. And the people just gave. And back then, they actually had to give blood. Now, when they they went back and asked for samples, you know, it's just a swab. But back then, in this blooding story, you know, they, these people had to actually pony up their blood, which I think is, you know, that's that's a commitment, but yeah. for a good cause, obviously. So, so it was around 2013 when this detective, Detective Bauhey, went around the county asking for DNA samples of men of a certain age who had lived in the area and compared those samples to the one lone sample on file that Ron had collected, you know, decades earlier. 
And so I think that that whole like looking at strangers, looking at transients, looking at hunters, looking at people who are passersby, you know, they're like, hey, let's go back and look at people who were in the community. And and so important that you get somebody with a different perspective mm-hmm. to come in and say, I get that you love your small town community and you can't imagine anybody here would commit this kind of crime. Mm-hmm. But let's just make sure, you yeah. know, if, if that other detective hadn't come in and mm-hmm. asked for that, mm-hmm. it could have changed the outcome again. Yeah. And all the locals, you know, gladly ponied up the DNA except one man. When detectives rolled up to the door of Timothy Bass, who had been 22 at the time of Mandy's murder, and he'd lived just down the street from Mandy on Strand Road. But when they first came to him, his comment was, no, I've seen a lot of shows on TV where they set up people and they're falsely accused because of a false DNA. I don't think I want to give that. So there was that. So it was kind of interesting because there was a twofer. You know, the people, they got the DNA from people and they could eliminate people. But then on the other hand, if somebody didn't give their, them the DNA, then they could be like, hmm. You, wouldn't they start immediately looking deeper into your activity around that time and trying to track, was it possible that well, you could have been? And he acted like a weirdo. Like he basically, they came up to his door and they were like, yeah, you remember, you know, the Mandy Stavick case? And he's like, hmm. Um, oh, please. I, yeah. Like, everybody so in that, that community knew. So, right. <laughs> so that was a huge red flag for them, too, the way that he was acting. He wasn't prepared for it. And so around that same time, other conversations were happening about Timothy Bass that had sparked between, particularly between two women out of all places, the Birch Bay Water Slides, which is a popular water slides. They brought their kids. And while their kids were playing, they shared stories. One woman recalled Bass coming and watching girls basketball games in a leering fashion. And then after he had, this was after he'd graduated. And the other woman actually remembered Bass coming to her house and saying he had always wanted to have a sexual relationship with her and she was holding her newborn baby in her arms and the way that he said it and looked at her it it really scared her and so the two women went to the police and recounted these stories and um, now I have to ask yeah how long after Mandy's disappearance was this? This was, well, like, it happened within the same time frame, like 2013, 2014, 2015, you know, 2016, somehow. But so, why didn't they come forward earlier, I the, guess, would be my question. And that's what Detective Ron Peterson says. You know, Tim, they never looked at him as a suspect, as a young man. He could have been looked at as just a quiet boy, because none of the information we know now, we knew then. I mean, other students weren't coming rushing to us and saying, this kid's weird. People in the neighborhood weren't coming to us saying, watch this guy, he's weird. There was none of that because, mark my words, if we would have got any kind of information like that, we would have focused in on it just like we did when it became known during the final stages of the investigation. So in all that time, Timothy Bass had literally flown under the radar. You know, now he was in his early 50s. And still living in the same area? Very close. A place called Everson, which is, it's it's nearby. Yeah. That takes some guts. Yeah. (laughs) 
That takes that takes some hubris. Yes. I mean, you know, it's pretty it's pretty ballsy. Anyway, I don't want to get ahead you're of myself. You're thumbing your but nose at yeah, investigators I mean, by being right in front of their face and, for and, decades. And that's the thing. As they took a closer look, they realized that he, you know, he was married and had children, but his wife had received a restraining order against him not to come close to her and the kids, that he was abusive. And um, also she was going to file for divorce. And then those things were pulled back. She ended up canceling that. And so they were kind of getting a different picture than what they had, you know, previously thought. And when they talked to the wife, she would say how he would always watch those CSI shows and basically criticize the the criminals and like, I'd never get caught if I, you know, if I did something, I'd never get caught. They're dumb. And so that There's really that creeped her. Exactly. I know. I know. Exactly. And so now that he was in the cop's sights in 2017, detectives set their sights on getting that DNA sample from Bass. The problem is, is that he never threw anything away. We got information that he took out his own garbage, that he washed his truck. He was methodical in making sure that toward later years, um, he would not put his garbage out on the street. He would take it somewhere. He always took his garbage from work. He never left anything in his locker or his work truck. So for him, he knew that if he got arrested, that was the end for him. Yeah. Well, he knew they had that DNA evidence. And if they compelled him to give his DNA, that it would be a match. Yeah. So he basically worked at the Franz Bakery, and he would deliver the the bread. And even when he was doing the bread, he wore gloves. I mean, he was not letting anything loose. And so police talked to a co-worker at the um, Franz Bakery, Kim Wagner, and eventually, on her own volition, she would collect a DNA sample from a cup that Bass had used and handed it over to the police. And so... Um, and on, when was this? This was in 2017. And so they took that DNA sample. They sent it away. And guess what? I guess you, you're smiling. I mean... It had to be, it right? Was, All it signs was, point towards guilty. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> and he... It was a complete match. I mean, it was like one of those where it's like a million times a billion. There's no way that this was not his DNA. Now, what I have to go back, rewind yeah, just for yeah, a second. Yeah. I, I realized that over the years, they continued kind of looking back at, at Manny's case and, and, you know, they still wanted to solve it. But was there something specific that really triggered this latest kind of resurgence of investigation? Honestly, they never they never stopped. They always had like a full time person wow. working on this. And I was like, how did that happen? Because in administrations, you would have I literally asked them that question, like, we can't justify this cost because we have other crimes that are happening right now. And Ron said, you know, they never said that the mandate was always get it done. In fact, this one detective, um, the one who wanted to do the DNA stuff, he went to Cambodia on this case because because there was a suspect that they were looking at that was wow. in Cambodia and they wanted to rule him out and they went there got a DNA sample I mean that's just one of the many 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 leads and then every time around Thanksgiving they it would the calls would spike you know people would give in more tips I mean this never never left I mean it's almost unbelievable but when you talk to Ron when you talk to the investigators it this was personal Ron 
said that a lot of the kids or a lot of the detectives at the time were all raising families at the time that this happened. And so it was just like that little girl that you saw, you know, in Arizona, you know, please help me. This was the same kind of a thing. And some of her classmates who had graduated and then went on to eventually become detectives, they actually worked on the case. And so it was always something like we need to solve this. It's almost, you know, that's as, that's as much an interesting part of the story as as anything else, is that they never, ever gave up. So in December 2017, 51-year-old Timothy Bass was arrested for Mandy Stavick's murder after that DNA sample that was collected by his co-worker. And um, the DNA from those items matched the suspect profile created from evidence taken from Stavick's body, you know, so many years ago. And then during that interrogation, the first thing <laughs> when Bass found out that they had his DNA. He's like, how'd you get my DNA? Because he had been so meticulous about not throwing anything away. And, and not... he wasn't asking if it was a match Ex- because he, he knew. knew. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And they told him. They're like, "There's, dude, there's no way you're getting out of this, right? And then it was like, when you watch the, the, the footage of that interrogation, you can see him, you know, the wheels are turning and he's like, well, I didn't ever want to say anything. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but I, you know, but... I had a consensual sexual relationship with Mandy Stavick. And they were like, what? I, I mean, could see that argument, though, because if the DNA that they found was inside Mandy, was, you know, assumedly semen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It could have been that there was a consensual encounter before she was murdered. Well, you know, that's what that's what he was going for. But people in the community were not having it. And when he actually went on trial, the prosecutor actually used this as a tactic. Every person that came on the stand was like, did you see him with Mandy? Had you ever seen him with Mandy? And everybody was like, no. And in no. that small town. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're paying attention. Exactly. Somebody would have seen them together. Yeah, yeah. But to say that, that this guy had a relationship with her. Everybody said the same thing, bogus. Are you kidding me? Him and Mandy, never in a million years. In fact, we did get some anecdotal information that um, Mandy had said herself, oh, this guy's creepy. One of the things I always tell the investigators, the people, is, well, if a woman's talking to you and you're investigating a crime of some kind and the woman says to you, he is creepy or he made the hair stand up on the back of my neck, you need to pay real close attention because I'm a firm believer in that world that women have a sixth sense that most people, most men don't have. I love, that was probably one of my favorite (laughs) things that he said. Yes. I have felt this way for so long and for years of my life, I would ignore that little voice in my head because I wanted to be analytical. I wanted to be rational and I just would ignore the voice in my head because I felt like I needed evidence. I needed reason to think what I thought. But as the years go by, I more and more find myself listening to that little voice and and finding that it's a good thing I did. Do you feel you know like what? You have I, that? I have to knock on wood right now because I grew up pretty scruffy and like, you know, bad side of town kind of thing. I mean, and I feel like I had to listen yeah. to that voice. You know, I had to pay attention to it because and I'm so grateful that I did because and that's what I tell my daughters and my sons like listen to that voice you know you don't owe anybody anything if you feel weird from someone 
you need to get away from them and that's okay. So that's why what it's so resonated with me when he said that and being in law enforcement. And it's like listening to women's intuition and not only listening to it, acting on it and honoring it as, as the, it should be. Like, it's evolutionary, right? So a jury ended up convicting Timothy Bass of first-degree murder of Mandy in May 2019. On July 2nd, a judge sentenced Bass to almost 27 years in prison. I got a little cut from him. I don't know how much you want to hear. I would first like to say that I'm 100% innocent of this crime. Furthermore, I don't believe I received a fair trial. In saying that, though, better man in me says I should say very little today and give this day to the staff family. Sir, I would like to address one thing. I love my father. I know. He's my best friend. I know. I know. What does it have to do with anything? I, I don't know. It goes on for like you know, two minutes, but I just okay, wanted I'm to, I, know, I don't want to care anymore. I, I, I know. He's a loser. I know. The real, there's so many people along the way, his coworker, Ron said, she's my hero. Because when they first came to that bakery and started asking questions about her coworker, she was like, hey, you know, just about what his route was, if there was any cigarette, if he was a smoker, cigarette butts. And she's like, hey, I don't feel comfortable. You need to talk to HR. And they went away. The Franz company wasn't willing to, you know, I mean, it's their employee. You right. know, you can understand. But then she grew up, like, she was the same age as Mandy. And so she remembered. And she started kind of putting two and two together. Like, they're looking at Tim. All the other guys, when they are done with their route, they give their clothes for the, and then the bakery washes them. He never does that. He never throws things away. Like she started watching things about him and she put two and two. And then she found out, then she was having a drink with some friends and she found out that he actually lived on the same road. And, you know, so she started putting two and two together. And so when the detectives came back again to try to get her, because there was no way they could get his DNA. How did she end up getting it for them? He let his guard down enough that he ended up throwing something away. And she was right there to go pick it up and put it in her desk. And she said that she did this because now she has kids. And she thought about Mandy Stavick's mom, who's still alive, who's in her 80s and who testified and who got that, you know, it's not closure, but justice at the end. So, I mean, there were so many critical players along the way. Right. But it's, it's kind of full circle, that DNA evidence. And going back to earlier, you mentioned the Green River Killer. Mm-hmm. So often when you hear these stories, you find out... She wasn't the only one. Yeah. Do we know if there might be others or if they're looking into that possibility? Um, I think that they're not because he kept such a low profile because he knew that if he got in trouble, anything, he was really abusive to his toward his wife and children, from what I understand from court documents. And so I think that um, he took it out on them. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but yeah, I mean, basically. And and she she actually was on stand and gave him an alibi and then took it back. I think that there was just, you know, what, you know, the battered woman syndrome. She doesn't want to believe it about her uh, husband. Well, I think maybe. that once she got away from him, then she, you know, she was just terrified. And even Ron said, you know, he was horrible to her. So and everyone who take a risk from his coworker to his wife, finally, you know, taking back that alibi. You know this is a guy who is capable of horrendous acts against women. Oh, yeah. And yet you're going out on a limb to get justice for Mandy. Yeah. And and that's the thing. I mean, it it, it takes a village. So in the, the small town, they came together 
and they solved the crime. And it's just amazing. It's almost unbelievable, but it's like the fact that they didn't give up, the fact that they didn't just leave it in some storage container, which they could have. I mean, it's incredible. And I think that is small town America. Yes. I think there are evil things that happen. There are evil people. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there is a connection that happens when you live in a small community and you really rely on each other and you take notice of when your neighbor is hurt or when your neighbor's in need. Um, and, and other people will take notice of your need and your hurt. There is a connection there that you don't get when you're in the city. And so I think in the end, that really is what led to this conclusion, what led to her killer. Yeah, and some damn good police work. Right, you know? that didn't yeah. hurt either. So what have what we got on deck for next week? So far, we've been talking a lot about crimes that have happened in the green spaces of the Pacific Northwest. The Doomsday Bunker out at Rattlesnake Ridge, the Stavik murder this episode. But as we all know, there is plenty of crime in the big city as well. Next episode, we're going to look at the case of three reclusive elderly brothers who've lived in one of Seattle's most exclusive neighborhoods for about 50 years. Their neighbors always thought there was something a little fishy about these guys. But it wasn't until one of them became so ill he had to be hospitalized that their dirty little family secret got out. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is The Scene of the Crime. <laughs>